0: I still hear his voice in my dreams. I was just a boy when he first called to me, but that event, that sound, it's so vivid, still so clear in my memory. It was unexpected, of course, the idea that God still speaks to people. I mean, for guys like Abraham and Moses, sure. But that was so long ago, and I was just a boy, young, naive, unimportant. My life has been, well, complicated would say it best. My parents, home, mentor, work, but this wasn't. It was clear, simple, direct. I heard the voice of God. And it changed my life.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here today at First Christian Church. Um, My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm really glad you're with us today. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 3. A complicated life is what we're going to look at. 1 Samuel chapter 3, if you grab a Bible... Maybe it's on your smartphone, or perhaps you'd like to grab one in the pew rack in front of you. If you're new with us today, and maybe you don't own a Bible, we'd be honored if you would take that home as our gift to you, seriously. I mean it. Please take it home if you don't have one at the house, all right? While you're looking for 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, I'd like to make a comment on something that I've noticed. It's a phenomena that seems to take place. Maybe you've noticed this as well. Life can be going extremely well. You know, like it's all sweet and... Everything's running on, you know, eight cylinders, and in the midst of some great accomplishment, you've just finished something, you go, man, we are, we are in the sweet spot, and then something goes wrong. Have you ever noticed that? Well, take a look at this guy to see how his life is in the sweet spot. we bomb- goes sometimes, isn't it? You just go, oh, life was so, oh, and then that. That's a funny look at that story or that understanding of phenomena. But sometimes when life goes, it's all sweet and it goes bad, if you will, it's not so funny. For example, look at this photograph. It's a photo of a woman by the name of Geraldine LaGay. She was hiking the Appalachian Trail in July of 2013, some three years ago now. She's an experienced hiker, spent years really as a hiker and, and on this particular trip she was walking the whole Appalachian Trail. She hoped she'd already covered, uh, com- covered some 800 miles over 2 months already. Texting and you know she had a, uh, keeping her family informed. She had a particular rendezvous point in mind where she was supposed to meet her husband at the end of July and she never showed up. They searched for long and hard. And never found her till two years later. She died on the trail. And when they found her, they found all her stuff, including her phone and where she was texting for help. The day after anybody last heard from her, this is what she said to her, sent to her husband. I'm in some trouble. I got off the trail to go to the bathroom. Now I'm lost. Please call emergency. That message never arrived. For some reason or other, she was out of cell reception. And she, being an experienced hiker, and uh, if you will, working in the bush a lot and in the forest, she knew that her key to survive was to stay put. Don't keep moving from place to place. So she made camp, and she kept camp for 26 days, journaling the entire time what was going on. And one of her last journal entries before she died of starvation was this. When you find my body, please call my husband George or my daughter Carrie. It will be the greatest kindness for them to know that I am dead where you found me, no matter how many years from now. The story is even made more tragic in that they went looking for her, and within those 26 days, they had a team with searching dogs within 100 yards of her camp, but the um, bush was so thick that they never found her. The story bothers me. They, They found her body... Two years later, and just this past week, they released all the um, journaling and texting messages, messages she tried to send. It bothers me because, like you, I want to ask how is it that a seasoned hiker with all the right gear and all the right training and doing everything right, how does that happen? I mean, one minute she's doing life really well, she's got 800 miles under her belt. And she steps off the trail for a little privacy and gets lost like that. And 26 days later, she's dead. You've probably noticed that for your life too, haven't you, at various points along the way. Life is going really well. You've got the garage all cleaned up. You've got your life all cleaned up. It's It's like you're in a walk in the park... And then suddenly something really innocuous, like somebody pushing the button on their visor. And, and, and it's like a dam of damnation seems to be opened up before you. And it's like just r- floods right over you, right? It wants to overtake your very existence and soul. And the question for us today is, what do you do in those moments? What would God say in those moments? Or, or perhaps an even better question is, how do you hear God's voice? In the midst of a very complicated situation, we're going to take a run at that in the coming weeks. We're going to look at the life of Samuel, a character from Scripture, uh, born more than a thousand years before Jesus was born. Very important role within Scripture. And uh, we're going to look in 1 Samuel chapter 3 today, somewhat into his story where he's already born and already. So, in order to give you, if you will, a little bit of a run up to what we're going to read, I want to introduce some characters in the story to you, if you will, the rolling credits ahead of the movie. Okay, we're going to start with Samuel's dad, who was a fellow named Elkanah. Elkanah uh, had an interesting situation. He had two wives, one he loved and one he didn't love so much, okay? But the one he didn't love so much, her name was Penina. She was like, uh, you could call her fertile Myrtle, if you will. He only had to look at her and she would get pregnant and, and you know, they'd have another baby together And uh, and she was a bully because the second wife, Hannah, who was who... Elkanah really loved was infertile couldn't have children and uh, she was depressed all the time because Penina would say I'm having babies you're not you can imagine the strife in that household in the middle of that situation uh, they are introduced to a gentleman by the name of Eli Eli is the high priest in the story he is, if you will, the premier religious figure in the nation of Israel. He had two sons with very strange names, Hophni and Phinehas. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well. Hophni, Phinehas, get over here. doesn't work so well. I, you'd call them, you know, hop and pop, get over here, or something or other. But Hophni and Phinehas, and they, they, were, um, they were not good guys. They were, uh, as a matter of fact, they were also priests in charge of what was taking place in the house of God. And if you wanted to see something done on your behalf in the house of God, you usually had to bribe them. And there are stories in the scriptures of how they were bribed and how they would demand things from people. And uh, from men, they would want money or meat, something to eat. From women, they would ask for sexual favors in order for those people to get into the house of God and have um, events and have their services taken care of. And so all these people's lives, all six of them, get intertwined and uh, their lives intersect in a very complicated way when through prayer Hannah learns that she's going to be given a son. So this is the lady who can't have children Suddenly now she's gonna have a son and she says to God in response out of gratitude for this son that she's been given, she says, I'm gonna have him raised in the house of God. I'm gonna have him learn to be a servant of God from a very young age, and this little boy by the name of Samuel is vindication for her as she is now able to say back to Penina, Hey, I have my own son and you can go jump in the lake with your kids if you you know, that sort of thing. Hopefully she didn't (laughs) hopefully she didn't say that, but nonetheless. Why I didn't I didn't say that in the other services? Why did I say it today? <laughs> we don't want your kids to jump in the lake. Please don't say us. <laughs> Here's what the deal is. Samuel is vindication for Hannah because he is going to be the replacement of the two evil guys. As a matter of fact, she places him in the temple to be raised from a young age, from about five years or so, or about five years old, and it gets very complicated because he is in fact going to take their place in the temple. Okay, so read with me without jumping in the lake today. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. All right, the boy Samuel, he's probably about, um, oh, he was probably placed in the temple somewhere around three to five years of age. By the time we get to chapter 3, he might be 10, maybe 12 at the most, perhaps. We don't know, but somewhere along there. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. I call- You called me. And Eli said, I-, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went back and he lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel went to Eli and said, you know, here I am, you called me. He's kind of like a little kid who's coming back. Okay, do I really have to go to bed? can I have just a glass of water? can I watch one more TV show? Can't, you know, he thinks he's, he's, he's going to play this out. My son Eli said, I didn't call. Go back and lie down. So Samuel, now Samuel, notice this, did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He hadn't heard God's voice before, so he didn't know what to expect. He's about to learn, though, all right? A third time, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Okay, here I am. You called me. And then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boys. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Pay attention to that. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It's going to come back up again yet later on today. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. So here's the story that we have as, as of this point. God talks to people, apparently. And for some reason, rather than this particular situation, you would expect that God would speak to the older guy, to the guy who's got all the spiritual experience, to the guy who's got all the spiritual responsibility for the nation. But no, God speaks to Samuel and not to Eli. He speaks to the little guy. It's fascinating, isn't it? If you carry on reading, you'll <laughs> learn that the message that Samuel gets is very, very disturbing. He's going to learn that the evil that is per- being perpetrated by Hophni and Phinehas has been noted by God, and they're about to lose their place in ministry and eventually their lives. And so Sa- God says to Samuel, "You need to go tell this to their father. This is about to take place." And that's exactly what happened. The young boy, if you carry on reading through chapter 3, the young boy eventually goes and tells Samuel, tells Eli, pardon me, and he does take the role of Hophni and Phineas in a God-given move. Now there are all kinds of things that we could draw from this text today, but I want to give you just four, four observations, if you will, um, just at first glance, things that, that come to mind here with this text today. First observation, sometimes, sometimes it appears God is silent. That's quite plain in the text here. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have this sense maybe that God is silent. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord, we read. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. You've probably lived this, haven't you? You serve God, you care for others. You, you, uh, you, you say, okay, I, I'm going to be like Samuel, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be used by God in ministry, and, and you do it under the, uh, under the auspices of other people, and you wonder, well, they hear the voice of God. How come I can't hear the voice of God? Can I tell you, even in those moments, God is there. Even in the moments you can't hear, we're simply like Samuel, like it says in verse 7. And we, the, Lord, the word of the Lord has not yet been revealed to us. We haven't got used, used to hearing and knowing what that sounds like. Uh, it's like we're in this long, dark tunnel, and you wonder, where's the light? Am I ever going to get to where I hear? And, and I don't know what's going on. Can I tell you there's a purpose in the middle of all of that? The BBC this week had a report about a tunnel that's just been completed under the Alps in Switzerland. It's this great, great report that they've given. The the tunnel is actually 35 miles long. It goes down to a mile below the mountain. And uh, the project costs some $12 billion to build. Look at the big earth-moving machines that are being used to, to dig through the rock. Fascinating. Engineers had to dig and blast through 73 different kinds of rock, some of it as hard as granite, Some of it as soft as sugar. They moved all that rock out from the tunnel. 20 million tons of rock. Not 28 tons. Not 2,800 tons. Not 28,000 tons. 28 million tons of rock was pulled out from beneath that mountain. And then it was crushed and used to make the cement for the actual tunnels. You can go through that tunnel, that 35-mile tunnel, in 17 minutes. In other words, you're traveling at a little faster than 120 miles an hour. Through the pitch black. Hmm. The reason the Swiss built it is so that not just for passengers, so passengers can get through the tunnel more quickly because it cuts off an hour of going around the mountain otherwise. Instead of more than an hour to travel around the mountain, you're through in 17 minutes. What it's going to do is going to take thousands of trucks off the roads and they're going to put all that stuff on those that train and go straight through the mountain. Thus cutting down on air pollution, cutting down on road wear, and, and um, actually freeing up the, the space so that it's available for people to go and enjoy the Alps and go straight through. And then, 17 minutes to go the 35 miles. In the dark, though. In the dark. And I wonder about this. When I... Have those moments when I don't know if I can hear from God and God's voice seems far away and there's not a lot of light. I wonder, is it feasible that God's apparent quietness and silence is simply a divine move on his part, getting me to go from one destination to another more quickly so I don't have to keep going around the mountain? Because in the silence is when you and I dig through the rock, isn't it? It's in the silence and the quietness we go, we gotta, we got to press in and figure out what's going on here. Because if we just went around the mountain the easy way, we wouldn't grow. It's complicated, absolutely complicated. But if God is silent today, it's feasible you're going through the mountain. And God is actually pushing you through to the other side. Observation number two. God's word is not for adults alone. Young people can hear God's voice. Now, Les and I have visited a lot of young people in recent weeks because graduation is here, and we're we are graced with receiving many invitations to go and celebrate uh, those parties and those events in the lives of some of the young people of our church and and friends and neighbors and so forth and so on. We and and when you're in those settings, you probably have heard what I hear. You hear lots of hope for the future, and you you stand there and you you know, and you got a, a soda in your hand and some you know, little sausage things that have been dipped in barbecue sauce, and you're talking with the kid, and you've been there, right? And, um, and, and you go, so what, what's your hopes for the future? And, and, you know, an 18-year-old will look at you in the eyes, and he'll, he or she will say, well, I'm thinking to go to this college. These are my plans. This is what I have in mind. And, or some of you say, well, I'm not going to college. I'm going to start this career. And it's, they've kind of got it all played, lined out. And yet, on the other hand, if you really press they'll go, well, yeah, but I'm going to try it. And, and I love it. I love that, you know, they're willing to say, I don't, I don't, I'm of the age where I don't have to have it all figured out right now, but I'm going to take a run at it. And it's all complicated how they're going to work it out. It had to be complicated for young Samuel, learning that he was going to take the place of two grown men. I mean, these are guys who are a generation in front of him, And we'd put it this way in our language. They had family connections to the ministry leadership team. And now he learns at 10 years of age, he's going to take their place and they're not going to actually move into the roles they should have had. Talk about complicated. Talk about wide-eyed, you know, going, well, this is what I'm doing, but I have no idea how it's going to work. Sounds similar to people who are both 18 and 38, and 48, and 98, doesn't it? We wonder, how's this all going to work? But what I do love about this passage is that this young boy, 10, 12 years of age, he hears and learns that God can speak to young people. And to those who are young people here today, I want you to be very clear about this. I'm absolutely convinced, whether you're 8 years old, whether you're 18 years old, or in between, whether you're 28 years of age, God can and will speak to you. And you don't have to just say, well, I have to be older. No. God can speak to the depths of your being today. And as a church, we're very interested in your spiritual development. We want you to learn to hear God's voice. And that leads me to observation number three. If I have spoken to those who are young, can I speak to those who are parents? Observation number three. Parents have a responsibility to make decisions regarding their children's spirituality. It's very clear in this passage. Maybe you didn't see it at first. But I think it's fascinating that Hannah made a decision to place her son under the tutelage of Eli. More importantly, look at how she approached it even prior to a pregnancy. Beginning of chapter, halfway through chapter ten, pardon me, halfway through chapter one, verse ten. As Hannah yet has any sense that she's pregnant, she's not even pregnant, she goes to the house of the Lord and and Eli, the old guy that she's going to get to know later on, happens to be standing there and she starts praying and he listens as we read in her deep anguish. Hannah prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. She makes that commitment long before she's pregnant. If you read the scripture, she's—I there. mean, there's no conception yet at this point. She's just praying, God, God, I promise this is how I'm going to live my life and this is what I'm going to do for the son that I pray you'll give me. And then Samuel was born. And after a few years, we read this. After he was weaned, she took the boy to the house of the Lord. She said to Eli, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he'll be given over to the Lord. And Samuel worshipped the Lord there. You know, we don't fully understand this nowadays in culture. How would a mother take a three-year-old or a five-year-old at the most, and leave, leave him in the house of the Lord and say to the old man, here, he's your responsibility. I, I, we don't, that's complicated, isn't it? It had to be complicated for her. She's still the mother. But despite the difference in our day and culture, here's what we do understand. Hannah made a decision for her son. It's not where she left him or where she, where she left him, but she made a long-lasting decision about her son's spirituality. And to that end, I want to um, make a couple comments here in a pastoral, with a pastoral idea in mind. If I can, take the preacher's hat off for just a minute and put on the hat of your pastor. Because I want to speak to those of you who are parents about this matter, particularly if you have younger kids, or if you have younger grandkids, whatever the case, because, um, well, I'll start by saying it this way. 10, 15 years ago, we had a family involved in the life of our church, very involved, active in lots of different ways, and People of fairly high profile in the community and fairly high profile in life of the church. Three kids, one in high school and then two younger children, one who was about 10 and one who was about 12. And the 10 and 12 year old got together and said, we don't want to go to church anymore. We're not interested in the things of, of God. And the father literally came to me and said, wait, we're not going to be attending anymore. Why is that? He going to another church? No, we're stopping church. Kids don't want to go anymore. And um, I said, what? The 10 and 12-year-old are going to make this decision? And I, they're, they're still in the community. I don't want to speak evil of them in any way. Because frankly, I, I see those kids now. They're in their 20s. Um, I see their parents all the time. And every time I see them in community, i got to tell you, my heart weeps. Because they don't know Jesus Christ. They have no sense of any Their family's spiritual life ground to a standstill my heart cries. Seriously. My heart cries that that family, in that moment, let the 10 and 12 year old make a decision. Parents, may I encourage you, please, make decisions that honor God, even if the kids don't like it, even if the children don't like it. Now, as a congregation, we're going to do all we can to help you in that regard. We do have all sorts of programming for children to make certain that they come here and that they learn. For example, we've got We've had trips uh, for teenagers. Uh, We obviously do teenage programming, but part of that involves them learning how to do ministry. Last summer, we sent a bunch of them to Cincinnati. Perhaps you saw this photo. You've seen it before. I think it's one of the best photos of our church. That is our church on the move right there. 185 people in in, in ministry in the inner city in Cincinnati last summer. We've got another team going there, similar size this coming year. We sent a bunch of kids to Cuba, juniors and seniors in high school last year. That same uh, age bracket will be going this summer, and um, I, I think it's all great stuff. We're teaching those kids how to do ministry. One of the things we're teaching them is that, hey, you don't get to just kind of go. It's not just a trip. You've got to raise the money, and you've got to figure out how to go, how you're going to get there, and what you're going to do there, and they have training to get up to that, get ready for it. So, for example, next Saturday night, there's a fundraising dinner that they're going to serve, and we invite you to participate in that, and uh, it's right after the Saturday night service. Please, friends, can I, can I... Can I grab your hand and say, let's go do that together, all right? We We're not only are responsible for how we handle teenagers, but we're very intentional for the ways in which we handle elementary and pre-K kids. We, we Hear me very clearly. What takes place in first-kid spaces is never babysitting. It is never, we'll drop our kids while we go to church. That's not at all. We have children there at any event we do with that age kids with the very intention, intentionality that says, we are teaching these children about the things of Christ. As a matter of fact, we even go beyond that. We have something called family faith events. They come along every few months, or uh, with some regularity, where they're focused maybe on second graders or fourth graders. And this is the honest truth. If your fourth grader comes up to one of those family faith events, here's Here's the expectation of First Christian Church. When that event comes up, you are expected to leave this worship setting and go to that worship setting because our primary responsibility is not to teach children but to teach parents how to teach their children. So that when we're teaching about communion, for example, we're teaching you how to teach your kids. When we teach about tithing, we're teaching your, you to teach your kids. When we talk about baptism, we're teaching you how to baptize your kids, which is why we, you see many times in kids' baptisms we put a parent in the water with them. Why? Not because we don't want to do the baptism. No, but because we want you to understand this is the role of First Christian Church when it comes to family life is to teach parents to raise their children to know Jesus Christ. We have an event this afternoon Uh, a baby dedication, we used to have baby dedications here on the stage, a family couple would bring a couple up and a a baby up and I'd hold the baby and we'd, we'd say a lovely prayer and then that would be it and it occurred to us, how are we really helping parents with these young children to grow in their understanding of what it means to raise that baby, so we changed it up so now if you want to have, when, when your pregnancy is announced, there's some lessons you can go through. There are ways in which you can plug in and start figuring out how you're going to raise your kid. And when we do a baby dedication, there's a series of lessons you work through. And we're having 15 families dedicate 16 children this afternoon, 15 dedicating 16. That's really good news. Yeah, good stuff. And those families, excuse me, those parents have done homework in preparation for it. And they will actually declare in a covenant form uh, what they're planning to do with their kids between now and when they send them off to college. So I, I know it's very complicated, and it's all, but we can no longer just simply say, well, we hope things go for the best. I'm not, that's not appropriate for us here at First Christian Church. And so in that regard, in a complicated series of decisions, I want to bring notice to you today of a change coming in our student ministries department because there's a trend taking place across the country that we're going to push back from. There's a trend that's that's in in play right now that when it comes to teenagers in in church, in the U.S. at present, one of every two young people raised in youth groups and in vibrant churches are leaving their faith behind once they get to college. One in two. 50% of kids are, if you will, you could say, they graduate from high school and they graduate from their faith at the same time. We're not going to do that. We're not going to let that. Barna Research puts it this way. 20-somethings put Christianity on the shelf following their spiritual active teen years. They're very active in the life of the church, but for some reason or other doesn't connect once they get to college. And I want to tell you, friends, we're going to change that. I believe Hannah's experience with Samuel here is key. She decided how and what how her son was going to be engaged in a growing relationship with God. And parents, can I tell you, that continues to be your responsibility. And as your pastor, I'm going to step behind you in every way I can because I know your heart. All of us want the best for our children. And the best thing for your children that you can provide is a way for them to know Jesus Christ. So with that research in mind... Um, over the last two years, uh, those of us in leadership teams have been really challenged by that. Because I would have to say, well, I don't think we're hitting the two for one, or the one for two, if you will. We do have some kids that have gone throughout church and are no longer serving Jesus. And they're 25, they're 27 years of age. And it, it's something that really bothers me. So we're pushing back. We've done lots of work and study on this, and this is what we've learned. That intergenerational worship... And intergenerational service helps teens make the transition to adult life. Did you hear that? I want to say it again. It's based on intergenerational worship and intergenerational service. And so with that in mind, that's what the research shows us. We're changing our approach to student ministries life in the fall. And we're letting you know now. Because you have to make a plan for a new look for our youth department come this fall. Beginning in the fall, teens will no longer meet separately from adults during worship services on Saturday night or Sunday morning. Beginning this fall, teens will meet for their worship and teaching time on Sunday afternoons, and then they will join their parents and other adults in the East and West auditoriums on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. It's a shift. I know it's... it's, I'm telling you now it's going to be very complicated for some families because your calendars are almost already set for the fall. That's why we're telling you now, here, before we get into the summer, that we want you to make plans now as to how we're going to do this because if, the, if research says the best way to keep kids in, engaged in a life with Christ after high school is for them to be in worship with adults during their teenage years, then you know what, church? We're going to make that happen. We don't have all the space that we need, but we're going to make it happen. We are not going to sit back and say well, it's okay for one and two to walk away from their faith. It's not right. It has implications for us. We've already begun staffing for this. We've added a full-time junior high person that's already on staff with us now, getting ready for the fall. And I know it's got implications for your calendar. And I invite you to be in dialogue with us about this and tell us how it's going to be a trouble and and help us work with you. Call Pastor Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. You call Josh, seriously, yeah. (laughs) He's already had some calls, I love it. Keep calling him, keep calling. It's a difficult choice, I get it. But you know what? People of mature Christian spirituality make difficult choices for the generation coming behind them, and we're not going to shy away from that, okay? As difficult as it is. Because here's what I'm clear, if Samuel was able to hear God speak to him, then I want all the young people of our church to hear God speak as well, and spirituality cannot be limited to adults. Not in any way. We can't give kids a pass. Well, you're 15 years of age, you get to pass them by. No. We can train our children in good spiritual habits when we work together. We can give them reasons to be modern-day Samuels, hearing the voice of God. We can, we can help them, if you will, develop muscle memory exercises in terms of their spirituality. You know what I mean when I say that? I'm going to play the piano during communion in just a few minutes. And, uh, you know, I've played a lot in the, over the years, and so there are certain... certain passages of um, music that are easy to play because you've practiced it before but there's one particular portion of this chart that i'm going to play today that comes up four times and it's extremely difficult because i've never played it before and so leslie will tell you for the last few months knowing this was coming i've practiced those four bars over and over and over again you know why so that i don't have to think about it any longer I can put my hands there, and I know how it goes. It's the same if you're, if, if you're in sports. You have muscle memory sports, right? If you're, if you're going to be a, a, a baseball player, you're going to have to have a, the right stance with your baseball, if you're, with your bat, pardon me. If you're, if you're going to play football, you've got to learn to cradle that football in the easy moments so that when it becomes difficult, it fits, it's just normal. If you're going to be a golfer, you've got to get that swing so it's just part of the muscle memory. The same thing needs to apply to us as people. Because here's what I'm aware of. Observation number four. Samuel 3 is a story of muscle memory. A young man began to learn to hear God's voice before all of life's complications showed up. I'm up for that. Are you? I'm up for saying, God, put within me disciplines of spirituality. Teach me how to hew through those 73 different kinds of rock through the mountain rather than going around it again. Help me, the Lord, do, even when you're silent, that I'm going to have some memory in mind and some some spirituality in mind that I've worked on before that's going to get me to the destination you want me to get to, and I'm going to push on through. I'm going to be who you want me to be regardless of how other people are because Man, I've been practicing this for a long time. These four bars, it's just natural now for me to be able to make it work. You know why that happened? Because Samuel's mother Hannah said, he's going to belong to God and we're going to train him. If you need some more training, friends, contact us. If you need to learn how to read the Bible, how to, how to pray, how to hear God's voice, you can exercise your spirituality and make sp- spiritual memory muscles. And that way, when the adventures of life come along and you're called, if you will, to step off the trail for a little bit of privacy, you know how to find your way. You know how to be like Hannah and say, okay, she may bully me a lot, but when my time comes, my child is going to be raised in the house of the Lord. And when my time comes, I'm going to be ready for what God brings my way. And when Samuel's able to say, hey... I'm a little boy right now, but I'm just learning to hear God's voice. I want to live there, working it out day by day. So to that end, here's what we're going to do. We're going to step into communion together. And uh, as we we go into communion, if you're preparing it, that would be very helpful if you go and get ready. Uh, It's one of our memory muscles around here, if you will. We gather together on a weekly basis, and most weeks uh, we have communion together. Why do we do that? Well, it's quite plain within scripture that Christians are supposed to do this regularly. And, you know, we have passages of scripture. You may have heard this before, and it feels real familiar that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you've been in church a while, you've heard that before. And it's like, oh, that's memory for me. I know what that means. If, if You have probably also heard the, the, the scripture that says, after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Paul says that whenever we eat and drink, we remember the Lord's death. We have this habit of remembering how this all works out in our lives. To that end, then we're going to have some muscle memory work going on right now where we will remember that Jesus died for us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you're invited to join with us. If you're not a follower, then in a moment I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'd invite you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And then you can eat and drink in remembrance of what Jesus did for you in Calvary. As we take communion, I am going to go to the piano, and I'm going to um, play um, an arrangement, an old hymn. It's written by Fanny Crosby. Some of you may know that name. Fanny Crosby was born in 1820, almost 200 years ago. She wrote some 8,000 hymns. And um, she was blind, not from birth. At six six weeks of age, she got a cold, it landed in her eyes, they put some medicine on it, and doctors to this day don't know if it was the medicine that caused her blindness, or perhaps the cold, or some other congenital defect, but nonetheless, she went blind, and her disability caused her to be very sensitive to how people spoke, she listened all the time, and consequently she had great abilities with language. 8,000 hymns she wrote. We know some of them. Things like Blessed Assurance. You may be familiar with that. It's one of the hers. They are, they are all now in a, in a, um, inside a vault at Wheaton College. Most of them unpublished. Though uh, in the last year, uh, some of them, brand new to the, to the public, almost 200 years old, were released and contemporary Christian artists put out an album of brand new Fanny Crosby hymns that most of them are certainly decades, decades. She died in 1915. So these brand new hymns to us, I've been there waiting for a long time for somebody to open them up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play one that says, I am thine, O Lord, Samuel says, I'm the servant of the Lord, I'm listening. And her language is, I am thine, O Lord, I've heard your voice, and it calls me into a relationship with you. As I play, the words are going to be on the screen. Maybe that would be your prayer. God, I'll be yours, I'm listening for your voice. I want to be drawn closer to you. I want to be that Samuel. And so to that end, let's pray together as we prepare for communion. Lord, for each person in this room this morning, I pray that you would, by grace, work in all of our lives. Lord, for parents who have the responsibility to know how to care for their kids, ask God that you give them great grace, great courage. Lord, for for perhaps somebody who's here today and doesn't know you, I pray that they would have courage that that person would be able to pray a prayer that simply says something like God I need you I would ask that you would forgive me of my sins and that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross would be applied to me and my sins would be forgiven and I'd be in a relationship with you for all of us God we thank you for Jesus Christ he's the one who calls us through the work of your Holy Spirit draw us closer to you Lord help us to hear your voice help us to develop muscle memory work that um We can fall back on when it seems like the, the tunnel gets really dark. Thank you for his work in our lives and for his prayers and his, Lord, the things that he taught us, including our Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.